Thanks, Peter. I'm really looking forward to uh, getting these proceedings underway, but uh, I want to uh, first of all welcome you all here. You all managed to finally get into this room. Um, I also want to specifically welcome some of the guests we have um, visiting us. The danger of mentioning people by name, of course, is that if you forget anyone, they'll never speak to you again. So, um, so even with that risk, I'd like to specifically um, welcome Malcolm Campbell, who is the uh, president of the International Actuarial Association. We do have quite a number of um, international delegates with us. So we have representatives from actuarial societies um, on our continent and um, around the world. So from Ghana, Mauritius, Zimbabwe, Namibia, Uganda, Kenya. We have representatives from the Netherlands, Germany, the Institute and Faculty, uh, the Society of Actuaries, the Casualty Actuarial Society, um, also various regulators from around the world as well. And, um, and of course, regulators from, from South Africa as well. So, so welcome to all of you, and I, and I hope that you find these um, proceedings useful. We certainly have an incredibly exciting program ahead of us, and I'm sure it hasn't been easy for you to select your topics for each of the sessions. Um, and in anticipation of all the excellent presentations and lots of active participation that lie before us, I'd like to really thank the authors and presenters who have poured huge time and effort into uh, putting together these papers and, um, and presentations. When I look at the range of over 70 presenters on our program for over the next two days, I'm really pleased to see that we have a healthy mix of what I call the usual suspects um, in terms of those who, who are guiding our thought development in the, um, in the profession and really ap uh, appreciative of that, but also an exciting batch of, of newcomers. And I, I really applaud your willingness to, to share your work and to share your thoughts um, with your colleagues here at the, at the convention. I hope that you have managed to read some of the papers prior to engaging with the authors and that you're feeling inspired and curious and you've got lots of questions lined up to, to move the discussions forward. I was looking at the agenda and I certainly feel that it, it, it reflects the significant and important role that the South African actuarial pr profession plays in the traditional areas of actuarial practice. We often focus our discussions on wider fields and new areas of practice, but I think it's equally important um, that we ensure that the profession continues to extend the realm of innovative thinking in our areas of core competency. We're going to be updated on mortality and health analyses, investment and solvency topics, insurance investigations, and damages guidelines, many with interesting twists on existing practice, particularly taking into account technology developments. And we also have important discussions on climate change, transformation, professionalism, risk management, and financial inclusion. And I really encourage all of you to dip into those as well, especially if they are outside your normal area of, um, of, of practice. As Peter mentioned, at the end of today, you're going to be hearing about the new CPD scheme, and you should be identifying your own opportunities for, for growth and, and development. So I hope that the, the course and the agenda that we have will help you to do that. It's really an, an interesting and exciting personal challenge for all of you, which I hope that you will embrace. Please also make sure you visit the exhibitions in the hall, and I think there's as much value in the discussions that happen in the, uh, in the, in the conference venues as there is in the passageways and, and at lunch and, and in the tea breaks. So I now have the privilege of introducing you to our opening plenary speaker, Joan Lamb-Tennant. She is the CEO of uh, Blue Marble Microinsurance. And this is a corporate entity actually registered in, in London, formed by six leading insurance and, and reinsurance groups, along with Marsh, McLennan, and Guy Carpenter. And their objective is to create markets delivering risk protection and, un, and to the underserved in developing countries.
Now, prior to this, Joan spent 18 years as a professor, during which time she lectured and published extensively on topics like investments, portfolio theory, and risk management. And she remains in the faculty of the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and also holds the Lawrence and Susan Hirsch Chair in International Business. She held an adjunct professorship also at the University of um, Wisconsin. In 2007, she was the founding president of General Reinsurance Capital Consultants. And prior to taking on her role as CEO of, of Blue Marble, which is what she's going to be telling us about, she was the global chief economist and risk strategist at Guy Carpenter. Her experience includes emerging markets, emerging market strategy, enterprise risk modeling, implementation of risk-based uh, decision processes, and high-value strategies for capital efficiency and profitable growth. And she was recognized in 2013 as the IPIW Insurance Woman of the Year and in 2012 by the International Insurance Society and received the Kenneth Black Award for Service and Commitment to the Advancement of the Global Industry. So I think she's going to be a, a very valuable speaker in terms of setting the scene for the discussions going forward. She's going to be telling you about some exciting plans and developments and projects that are actually happening and include some of our members in the activation team, which is very exciting. So I said, I'm hoping that Joan's presentation will set the tone for our discussions over the next two days, and that we should be looking for these kind of collaborative opportunities to address challenges around developing protection mechanisms in underserved markets. And when I'm saying protection mechanisms, I'm meaning in the space of life, health and property cover, as well as savings and investments. So these are opportunities for us as a profession to make a real difference. And as Joan will highlight, they don't necessarily need to be charitable undertakings. So Joan, we're very much looking forward to your talk. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Roseanne, and good morning. I, um, I'm going to start with a wonderful African proverb, and it goes like this. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Now, in 2010, I was working in the emerging market space. I was primi primarily focused on large commercial risk, environmental risk, energy and climate change. And of all places, I was working in China. And I happened to just look afar and see this wonderful image. It was mesmerizing to me. Now, you have to look pretty close to get the point. There's actually not one but two women in these rice paddies. One is in the foreground, one is in the, back, is in the near ground. But they're working alone. And their task is absolutely impossible they will never be able to control the irrigation required for this rice paddy, nor will they ever be able to cultivate the maximum opportunity that it is giving the earth. But there was another thing that I recognized, and I recognized that these women, like many others, live in the world without any safety nets. They haven't savings, and they haven't any form of protection. They are simply one mistake away from the devastation of their crops and then the consequence, which is to return to the bottom of the economic pyramid. So hold this thought for just a moment. This was an image. 
that truly inspired me to focus on microinsurance. So when I start to think about things, you always go back to your roots. You know, I'm trained as an economist, and I start pulling out economic theories and saying, do they speak to me? Can they help me answer this question? So one theory that I reflected on, and it's one that you all know, I'm sure, comes from game theory, it's one of the anchors, is the prisoner's dilemma. Now, the prisoner's dilemma is very simple. You have two prisoners that are held in confinement, and they have a choice. They can testify against the other, which is their own personal optimal. Or they can remain silent, which is really the optimal in aggregate. The problem is, how do you incent them to remain silent? And the answer is trust. You've got to somehow or another build trust if you're going to work collaboratively to achieve a global optimum. So let's hold this thought for a minute as well. And I'd like to now turn my attention to the story of Blue Marble. So while the original thinking probably dates back to 2008, 2009, it was 2015 that we finally got eight insurance entities to agree on a common mission. And the common mission was to close the protection gap between the economic losses and the insured losses. In other words, to figure out a way to provide those needed safety nets to the men and women that are right on the edge of moving into the middle class, but they're only one disaster away. The death of a breadwinner, a drought for a farmer, and as a result of that, they would fall to the bottom of the economic pyramid. Now, Blue Marble actually has a very clear mission. And our mission is to be sustainable. You can't be sustainable without some form of profitability. But we have a structure that allows us to reinvest those profits back into our ability to fund future pilots. We have a set of values, very important values. The first one, of course, is to be sustainable. The second one is to be socially relevant. But the third one is, we're not going to do this alone. We might be eight amazing entities that represent 275,000 employees operating in 170 countries, but we're still not going to solve these problems alone. So we have to have lasting public-private partnerships. And you know, we work long days. So our last value is to be inspired by others and yes, to inspire as well. Now, our structure is um, actually fairly unique, and as is our business model. As I mentioned, we are eight competitors, but yet how do we create a set of incentives through trust so that they can put their competent competitive edges aside and think collaboratively towards this massive problem that we're trying to solve? closing that protection gap. We're very different. Let me go back and we're very, very different if I look at these companies. We have large global entities like Marsh McLennan, AIG, Zurich. We have entities that are primarily focused on a single continent like Old Mutual. And then we have a very interesting company, Hamilton. 
Its leader, Brian Dupro, is truly a visionary. He was the CEO of ACE. He was the CEO of Marsh McLennan. And I dare tell you his age, but let's say in his late 60s, he is now the CEO of Hamilton. Hamilton is a technology company that uses big data to solve problems in investing, and now they're using big data to find new ways to underwrite small and commercial business. So we have a real difference amongst the companies that are behind us. We have a unique talent model, which I'll share with you. Uh, we're a team of five, full-time management. But I'd like to tell everybody that we're a team of 275,000. I walk into a room and you'd be surprised how you command attention when they ask how many employees do you really have. But no, we really are a team of five. And let me tell you a little bit about my team. Bilal is from Pakistan. He was raised in Kuwait. He lives in Zurich. He has a PhD actually in aeronautical engineering. So he's our rocket scientist. He's wonderful. He's everything to me. Jaime is from Spain. He actually had a, a career initially uh, with GE Capital, a real finance guy. He went back to Columbia University and got a degree in public policy. Jaime is going to lead our operations in Africa. But I must tell you, Africa, you got a twofer. There's a woman very special in its knife who's French by the name of, of Sophie, and she's working in the same field. The next one that I'd like to share with you is uh, Catalina. Catalina is Colombian. She has a degree also from a university in Switzerland in development. Catalina is married to a wonderful man named Giuseppe. He's Italian, obviously. And uh, he's actually on a postdoc at Harvard University. He's fairly well known, studying the side of the brain that makes moral decisions. And then last of all, Liz. Liz is very young, having just finished her degree in public policy. She's our anchor. She's our provocative thinker. And uh, she's American. So that's the team of five, including ourselves. Um, we actually have very unique governance. We have the C-suite leaders of each of the eight companies that serve on our board. And our board meetings are fairly, let's say, active. Of course, we do things that you have to do in governance. We talk about risk. We go through finances. We go through operational issues. But we get that done in 30 minutes, and then we spend the next two hours on our ventures. And these eight individuals invest intellectually in giving us the wisdom of a statesman, the years of, in numerous years of experience, as we, the management team, get to be provocative, entrepreneurial, innovative thinkers. And we also create a lot of partnerships. So we currently have a partnership in Colombia with a large consumer products firm, in Peru with the Ministry of Agriculture. We have partnerships with technology companies, uh, with government agencies and quasi-agencies, like quasi-agencies of the UN. So we really believe in this concept of partnerships. Now let me talk about our ventures. Okay. Now, the worst thing you want to do when you get started is to be geographic focused. As a matter of fact, you know, basic portfolio theory says, let's put a bunch of small bets out there and see which one harvests us. So yes, we're operating in Africa. And as you can see, our very first venture is in Zimbabwe. 
I just uh, launched that venture before coming here to be with you. We're also working in Kenya. As with regards to Latin America, we've got ventures that will be going online in 2017 in Peru and in Colombia. And we're also working on accelerating a very interesting idea in India. So we're placing some small bets around the world. We're focused on three things. The first thing is food insecurity. And of course, that gets us into thinking about agriculture risk and climate change issues. The second thing that we're focused on is how can we, let's say, create the necessary safety nets and incentives to basically make sure that we create continuing opportunities for micro-entrepreneurs. These are small shop owners, they're small tradesmen, they could be artists, but simply men and women that have micro-businesses most of the time in the informal economy. And the last thing that we're really focused on in these ventures is uh, financial inclusion. How do we really bring in the four billion plus people in the world that really have no access to the basics of finance, the ability to save, the ability to get credit, and yes, the ability to buy insurance and therefore have protection. Now, every one of our ventures is about scarcity. We're trying to solve a problem regarding scarcity. There's a wonderful book called, and it's titled Scarcity. And what it says is when you're solving a problem around scarcity, and let's pick the first, the risk associated with agriculture, it could be the scarcity of rain. Or if you're trying to think about poverty, it's the scarcity of money. So you always default to thinking about solving a problem around the absence of, an, of a commodity. What this book does is it helps you realize that in solving a problem about the absence of a commodity, there's really another one that's hidden under the covers. And it's the other one that's the most difficult to solve. It's that men and women living in scarcity are less insightful, they're less forward thinking, they're more accepting. As a matter of fact, that's where they get their strength. They spend no energy on changing, they just accept because it's through that acceptance that they can get through the next day. So in solving these problems, the, the solution isn't, well, let's just get more money into that economy, or let's, you know, somehow or another provide irrigation methods to drive farmers so that we create access to water. It's much deeper. You've got to get into the behavioral issues. How do you create a set of incentives that just basically empowers these men and women living in scarcity to think differently, to think forward, to be insightful. So let me just turn to Africa for just a moment, uh, which is where we're actually doing our first venture. You know, in Africa, 23% of the adults have no access to formal banking. But guess what? It's in Africa where you have the most active informal banking. By that, I mean mobile money accounts. In Africa, you have 500 million mobile subscribers. And you've already figured out how technology can crowd in communities that had previously been left behind. So our first venture, actually, is going to be in Zimbabwe. And in Zimbabwe, what we're doing is we're providing drought protection 
to maize farmers. We're piloting in a very unique way. We're piloting, of course, with an index, but I think our index has some interesting applications to it. We're using some sensor technology in the field that not only picks up rain, but it picks up soil moisture and leaf health. And we're piloting with some wonderful partnerships that's allowing us to SMS text quite regularly to the farmers. Now, I can't wait till we can transfer these feature phones to smartphones, allowing two-way communication. Have you heard about iCal? iCal is a wonderful innovation, in, uh, a wonderful innovation that actually kind of got started in Kenya. And it was just that technology that we need to know. It's the technology that allowed us to have two-way, 24-7 communication with dairy farmers. And what we learned is not only that we could communicate to them, but we could better understand their problems and adapt our services to actually meet their needs. It's a terrific success story. But there's another one. It's not just about technology. It's about new distribution platforms. With regards to new distribution platforms, this is a perfect example. It's called the Coca-Cola model. And it's where you're selling malaria drugs alongside of food products in supermarkets. And that the supermarket just becomes your distribution. As a matter of fact, what it's about is looking into the value chain of the poor and asking how are they currently served? And then how could we provide other needs? Prescription drugs, insurance protection, other needs to meet their, their, uh, their hurdles. We're currently distributing market uh, insurance using utility companies, using retail outlets, using mobile phones, and not agents. All right, these are very innovative programs. They've been si designed to solve big problems by using not only technology, but also using partnerships, partnerships within the value chain of the poor as your engine. I'd like to turn my attention for just a moment to how do you balance metrics, return on equity and success metrics. We tend to think of these as being at odds with each other, but they're really not. We use return on equity methods, typical financial constructs like net present value, internal rate of return, return on economic value, payback period, we got the whole list. And we're proud of those metrics because if we cannot make these ventures profitable, then it's charity and it's not a sustainable business model. But we also use social impact metrics. The first one is actually a very simple one. It's scale. The poor is very smart. They're not going to embrace any activity, including one that's free, unless it's of value to them. So if you can achieve scale, that's probably the first and the best metric of are you creating social impact. But there's others that are very important. You can either work on the income side of the equation or the consumption side of the equation. Now, income is what you typically see, things like GDP or income per capita. But the problem we know, particularly in Zimbabwe where we started, is that 85% of the economy is in the informal economy. So then what do you do? We're actually going to look at consumption metrics. They're very good. Consumption metrics could be things like um, the birth weight of a child after two years. 
are calories consumed per person. And those metrics are very, very good, particularly in the countries where we're working, where informal economies are extremely strong. Well, in wrapping up, what I'd like to do is wrap up with three thoughts that I hope to leave behind. And I'm going to call these limiting beliefs. We all have them. And I'm going to share with you, very humbly, the limiting beliefs that I was able to face that resulted in and inspired Blue Marble Microinsurance. The first one is that technology will displace human capital, that we're all going to be out of a job because of technology. Well, we know that's not true, as a matter of fact. I got active in an initiative. It's a global initiative called Global Connect. It's looking to extend the internet connection to a 1.5 billion people before 2020. I'm passionate about that initiative because what I think is once you have access to the internet, you can then leapfrog, leapfrog these major infrastructure investments like banks and you can start interacting and providing services. You can also create this informational exchange where we can make offers but learn. Learn if, in fact, they're working. Technology is going to be the ultimate empowerment that allows us to bring in this informal society. You know, just for a moment, think about the driverless car. Those of us in the insurance industry gets really nervous because we think, oh, we're going to lose all this premium volume from auto liability and auto physical damage. But think just for a moment what the driverless car really does. The man or woman who perhaps doesn't have sight or perhaps is a paraplegic and therefore has no form of transportation, or if they do, it's a very inefficient form, you actually have now brought them into the society, given them an opportunity to join the economy, the formal world. So I see the driverless car as being very, very empowering. Let me go to the next one. The next one is, the next one is um, actually that the way to be successful is to do your job and do it extremely well. Spend all your time looking at your job description and making sure you're getting exceptional performance on each aspect of it. Well, I'm going to suggest to you the 80-20 rule. It's actually something that's embedded in Google's uh, HR policy. And what it is, it says you do what's in your job description. Do it well. You may not maximize each one of them. Just do it. Get it done. But do it in 80% of your time, spending 20% of your time doing something that's not in your job description. How could someone else even begin to phantom what your purpose in life is, what your passion is. So remember that 80-20 rule. Do what you need to do to make sure you're a solid performer and you're not letting your team down, but also understand someone else from the outside who wrote that doesn't really know you. All right, the next one and uh, the third one, which I really quite like, is uh, it's a quote. And it's a quote from an anthropology professor. And here's what he said. All you need is a garage, a good idea, and energy, and you will have found a company that will change the world. You know, as a professor, I would tell you many of my MBA students believe this, but I want to tell you what the odds are. 
if all you have is a garage and a good idea and energy, the odds are about 95% of them fail. Now, why is that? This belief is very limiting because it forgets. It forgets the wisdom of the elders that have come before you. It forgets the influence of the leaders, the policymakers that work alongside of you. So what I'd like to say, it actually takes a lot more. It takes somehow or another a way, a business model, a structure that you can capture that energy. You can capture that passion driven by purpose, but you can also leverage the wisdom of the elders and the influence of the policymakers. You know, there's a great quote um, that Steve Jobs made uh, when he was delivering a graduation address at Stanford University. And he said, your work is going to fill a large part of your life. And the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. And the only way to do what is great work is to love what you do. He said, if you haven't found it, no problem, keep looking, but don't ever settle. Well, I have 40 years of experience in industry, and people say to me, Joan, you know, there's a good life out there, there's a beach. <laughs> and I say, no, I'm living the good life. I am living basically 40 years of a pursuit with some wonderful people, the industry that I love. So in closing, what I'd like to do is encourage you, each and every one of you, to identify your limiting beliefs. Yours will be different than mine. Find yours. And they'll come to you in a very strange way. So be astute and awake in your life. Mine started, as you could tell, with the picture of the women working in the rice fields. So the signals will come to you over life and it may take you 40 years, no problem. In addition to that, I'm gonna encourage you to remember the 80-20 rule. Don't ignore those limiting beliefs. Find the purpose in your life, and regardless of your job description, find 20% of your time to actualize that purpose. Act on it. And last of all, I'd like to say, never give up. So, I'm an American, tomorrow's Thanksgiving. I will tell you that I'm delighted to be with you today. I'm gonna be leaving this afternoon and taking a plane so that I can be home tomorrow for Thanksgiving. And of course, I'm going to give uh, gratitude to my wonderful husband and children and, you know, the many blessings that I have in life. But actually, what I'm going to be giving thankful, gratefulness to is this terrific industry, the people in this industry, the actuaries, the economists, the mathematicians, the scientists, the underwriters. And last of all, I'm going to be giving real gratitude to Africa, but in particular, Zimbabwe because they have given me a purpose so that I can live my passion. So I look forward to the work we're doing and I look forward to returning. Thank you so much for letting me be with you the day before American Thanksgiving. Thank you, Joan, for that. Some uh, very challenging and, and insightful thoughts, and, and thank you for that. Um, 
Joan has, has very effectively helped catch up some time and made some space for us to be able to take any questions if anybody would like to ask a question. Um, I assume that there are roving mics. Um, so if anybody wants to ask a question, please raise your hand very high because it's difficult to see you from here. There's one over here down at the front. <coughs> <laughs> it, it is on its way, Arthur. <laughs> Are there any other questions so we can line line them up? There's another one in the middle at the front here, so we'll pass that mic on. It should be fine. Arthur, go ahead. Right. Thank you very much, Jane. Your work welcome. is very inspiring. It's wonderful. Just some of the nitty-gritty. How do you get those group of ladies to actually pay a premium? to cover the cost to make the business sustainable. Can you give a little bit more detail? Certainly. Um, actually, it's, um, in many cases, we have subsidies, particularly that's true for Latin America. But we all know that subsidies aren't the answer, because what happens when you have subsidies, sometimes the poor don't even know they have insurance. So you're not really doing what you need to do, which is, is actually activating a set of incentives that helps them make better choices in their lives. Because it's not insurance, it's those better choices that fuels them. Zimbabwe is actually a really special place. It is so well educated. So our strategy there, and we're testing it, we're actually not using subsidies. We're going to leapfrog that traditional step in development. But we're spending a significant amount of time in terms of education. Okay? So we're trying both. Peru is subsidies. Colombia is subsidies. Zimbabwe, it's education. And so I'll come back next year, the day before Thanksgiving, so I don't have to cook. And I'll tell you which one is right. OK? <laughs> Thanks. Thanks very much. There was one in the middle. Um, hi, that was a great talk. My name is Tando. I'm from Zimbabwe. Ah. Um, yeah, you're very brave, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, by the way, it does take bravery, okay? <laughs> Conviction, purpose, bravery, throw it all in there. Yeah, I just, just wanted to understand um, what your interactions with the government are, if, if, if any, like, did you have to deal with empowerment laws? Did you have to, did you register a company in Zimbabwe or are you operating from outside? Like, just don't understand. Yeah, that's also a very good question. Now remember, take a look at the eight companies that uh, own Blue Marble. One of them is African predominantly. And I will tell you, when we bought this idea to them, uh, because you obviously have to have approval from the board, you know, the first thing that they just said is, you know, why don't you do something like easier, like a lot easier, like sell credit life somewhere where there's microinsurance laws in place. And, and, and it's really not considered a failed state. Um, we're very lucky in the sense that, you know, O Mutual is one of our team members. And, um, and I mean this with great sincerity. O Mutual has an amazing talent in Zimbabwe with terrific leadership. And so part of this was um, putting the political risk issues and the economic issues aside. You still have a country that once was the breadbasket of the world. And we have a management team, highly educated, who share the same purpose that Blue Marble has. 
And if it wasn't for the dedication and time that they invested, the legs on the ground, if you will, the wisdom of the elders, we would have never gotten it over the net. So the first is, you know, how do you get a product approved? And, uh, you know, we were students of the Zimbabwe team that, ta that taught us what you had to do to get a product approved. Um, I would tell you, it's actually a great, impressive document. And because it's, it's such a well-educated society, we had all the, the actuarial runs and we had all of the uh, geocoding and, I mean, it was a sophisticated submission, all right? Um, so I think we had, in spite of the political and economic issues, you know, we had ed educated society that allowed us to be very, very convincing and we had this wonderful on-the-ground team that knew how to operate successfully in that environment. Now, what's going to happen? Will the bond notes go out of hand? You know, will the leadership change and will the society revolt? You know, what's going to happen? We don't know. But I can tell you that, remember, we're making small bets. These are pilots. 90% of what we do, we can lift and shift to another country. Okay? And by having taken the commitment that we're making to Zimbabwe, you'd be surprised what other opportunities are coming our way. They're saying, wait, if you're going to do that in Zim, hey, how about this one? So I think by being brave and taking on the impossible, you know, has really showed our seriousness and our commitment. Okay? Thank you. Are there any other questions? There's one uh, over this side of the... With uh, governments, or perhaps people, all over the Western world apparently turning their backs on uh, the rest of the world, um, do you see this as a, uh, your, your um, initiative uh, as a new model for business to carry the torch uh, of, of development? Well, I think it's one. I don't think it's the only, but it's one that's never been tried before. Um, and so we're going to learn a lot from it. But let me go back to it. It's, it's really a concept called shared value creation. And it's something that we teach in the business schools. It's kind of a hallmark idea right now. I've seen it successful in other industries, particularly the airline industry, where competitors come together to get bravery from each other power, commitment, talent, bravery, to solve big problems, not little problems. It's human behavior. We like to do little things. You know, the perfect example is, you know, we go and we insure our television sets when the, big, the real problem is that as a society, we're totally exposed to under-saving for retirement, you know. Yet, you know, insurance on, uh, short-term insurance on personal assets is, you know, doing extremely well. We're kind of wired to solve little problems because we can do it, and we can do it alone. So this business model is about look at big problems, but you know what? You have to put your guns down and do it together. And by the way, gain strength, gain wisdom, and gain bravery from the others that join you. But remember, it only works if you have trust within and amongst those eight, which we work on every day in every way. Okay, so yes, I do think it's a new way of solving big problems and repositioning our inner industry around societal relevance. We won't have an image problem if we do that. Yeah. <laughs> I think, is there one more question if anybody has? 
Well, Joan, I'd like to thank you as well for that. And just to, I think for me, a couple of the things that came through as you were talking was just the the, uh, the need to work together in multidisciplinary teams. And you've, you've mentioned it at the end here as well, that element of trust, building that trust in multidisciplinary teams that you, you can, uh, can move forward with that. And out of that, you can roll out uh, um, solutions to problems that are perhaps bigger than you can achieve on your own. And just to, to reiterate to, to everybody your, your comments of identifying your limiting beliefs, remembering the 80-20, Never give up and be bold. So um, let's hope that you don't have to bring any of those to play as you travel back home with your limited time frame <laughs> to get back before Thanksgiving. Um, and we really do appreciate you having um, taken this time to be with us and to share some, some inspiring thoughts and some inspiring works that are happening. And we do wish you well in being back with your family for Thanksgiving. And uh, I have a, a small gift to, for you ah. on behalf of the Actual Society of South Thank Africa. You. Thank you. Thank you. So much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Peter. I have one or two more housekeeping notes um, to, to note. First of all, uh, I forgot to recognize our sponsors at the start of the meeting. Those of you who, uh, who do know who I work for, that was not a deliberate slight to our, pro to our gold sponsor. It was an accidental error for which I apologize. But uh, Deloitte, uh, thank you very much for being our gold sponsor to SCORE. Uh, Genry, Hanovery, Old Mutual, RGA and Sunlum uh, being silver and bronze sponsors. Liberty for the water bottles. Uh, Color Field for the delegate bags and TransUnion for the lunch. Um, thank you, and if you wouldn't uh, with me, just uh, thank those sponsors, because without them it doesn't work. <laughs>